Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is entitled, Drinking Tears by the Bowlful, for Sunday, November 27, 2005, the first Sunday in Advent. When I was a visiting professor at Moscow State University, we did not own a car for four years. 1991 to 1995. Not owning a car was mainly a blessing in that beautiful city of 10 million people. We enjoyed our urban walking. Mastering the transportation system presented a nice little challenge. And besides, who wanted to negotiate parking, vandalism, and scarce petrol? On the other hand, we did a lot of waiting that felt like a huge time sink. Waiting waiting, waiting. At night, in freezing temperatures with three tired kids, stomping our feet to keep warm, craning our necks to read the numbers of each bus that passed by, jostling with Muscovites at the crowded stops. And for what? To shove your way aboard a rickety, smelly, crowded bus where you stood cheek to jowl until you arrived at your destination then elbowed your way off and out. Would the bus ever come? Should we just walk or should we wait? You never knew, nor could you know. Waiting for a bus is laughably trivial compared to what some people wait for. The most profound and perplexing puzzle for Jews in the Old Testament was why God gave his nation Israel over to their pagan enemies Assyria in 722 BC, and then Babylon in 586 BC, both of whom vanquished them. How long must they wait for God's demonstrative acts of salvation? Had they not become a mockery to their neighbors? The psalmist this week begs Yahweh to come and save his people, only to complain that he has made them, quote, drink tears by the bowlful, end quote. Psalm 80, verses 5 and 6. Similarly, in Isaiah's elegant poetry for this week, he wistfully recalls the long-gone days when Yahweh wielded his, quote, glorious arm of power, end quote, and Moses spearheaded the exodus from Egypt that humiliated Pharaoh. But in his own day, Isaiah could only question, quote, where are your zeal and your might? We all shrivel up like a leaf. You hide your face from us, end quote. Isaiah 63, 15, and 64, verses 6 and 7. Today is not much different. If you open your eyes and your heart, you see your friends, colleagues, and neighbors struggling to detect some glimmer of hope in times of confusion, pain, and darkness. Aging parents battle chronic loneliness and deteriorating health, while their adult children with their own families, with their own problems, feel helpless to help. A struggling teenager gulps a bottle of pills. A friend in Arizona hopes his kid will graduate not from Harvard, but from high school. Divorcing parents fight bitterly over custody of their kids. One night last week, a police car pulled into my neighbor's driveway. 
Can we discern even the faintest signal that God is not entirely absent and silent? Might we legitimately hope for even a modicum of health, wholeness, and healing for ourselves and for those whom we love? Isaiah and the psalmist both fairly well beg God to prove himself by some cataclysmic act of power. Listen to Psalm 80. Hear us, shine forth, awaken your might, come and save us, restore us, return to us, look down from heaven and see us, revive us, O Lord Almighty. For his part, Isaiah dispenses with all nuance and subtlety. In Isaiah 64, verse 1, he cries out, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. He cajoles Yahweh to come down like fire to tinder that causes water to boil, to perform, quote, awesome things we did not expect, end quote. The disconnect between what we sometimes experience and what we pray for that results from God's apparent silence is a source of understandable anxiety and frustration. Praying to God for mighty acts of deliverance is an entirely human and genuinely Christian response to the pain and suffering of the world, of our neighbors, and of our own lives. I intend never to stop praying for God's miraculous intervention. Such prayers remain a staple of my morning runs. But this season of Advent that we now enter adds an important qualification. God is not a cosmic concierge. Human experience gives the lie to the delusion so deeply embedded in the American psyche that every problem has a solution and that every question has an answer. Sometimes, we're reminded at Advent, we must wait. After 20 years as a professor at Notre Dame, Yale, and Harvard, the Catholic priest Henry Nouwen moved to a home for the severely handicapped called Daybreak in Toronto. The temptation of Jesus to turn stones into bread, Nouwen suggests, is the temptation to be relevant, that is, to do something concrete about the world's sufferings. Listen to Nouwen. Oh, how often I have wished that I could turn stones into bread. Walking through the towns on the outskirts of Lima, Peru, where children die from malnutrition and contaminated water, I would not have been able to reject the magical gift of making the dusty stone-covered streets into places where people could pick up any of the thousands of rocks and discover that they were croissants, coffee cakes, or freshly baked buns, and where they could fill their cupped hands with stale water from the cisterns and joyfully realize that what they were drinking was in fact delicious milk. In his sense of frustration, Nowen has always reminded me of Isaiah's words, Oh dear God, split open the heavens and come down. Prove yourself. Please do something. At Advent, though, we practice waiting. Even though Costco displayed their seasonal merchandise in October, Christmas is still a long way off. The winter solstice will mark the longest night and the shortest day of the year.
leaves will fall and grass will fade to brown. And so we enter a season of waiting. And God, according to Isaiah, quote, acts on behalf of those who wait for him, end quote. Isaiah 64, verse 4. In the epistle for this week, Paul sounds a similar note, commending the Corinthians for, quote, eagerly waiting for our Lord Jesus to be revealed, end quote. Patient waiting is not an excuse to avoid helping those whom we can encourage, but there will always be plenty of unresolved heartaches this side of heaven that require us to cultivate endurance, confidence, and hope through waiting. We wait in patience, knowing that not every act of God reverberates like a pounding sledgehammer. In Isaiah's metaphor, God does not always split open the heavens. Whereas even his closest disciples longed to call down fire from heaven and to brandish swords, Jesus compared his coming kingdom to tiny mustard seeds and to the imperceptible but certain fermentation of yeast. In his classic Advent hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem from 1868, Philip Brooks, a university preacher at Harvard, where today a house is named for him, describes the discipline of patient waiting for the invisible kingdom. How silently, how silently, the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessing of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still the dear Christ enters in. Many first century Jews longed for a powerful leader to rout the oppressive Romans. God did answer their prayers, but in a manner that was easy to miss. Instead of military might, he sent a baby born in a barnyard. At Advent, we reenact their watching and their waiting, their prayers and their longings alert to God's whisper as well as to his shout. And so we pray with the psalmist for this week, Restore us, O Lord Almighty. Make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. And now a few questions for further reflection. Where do you wait for God to act? What obstacles challenge you to patient and confident waiting. Can you identify clear instances where God acted definitively yet silently, almost imperceptibly? And finally, how might Advent cultivate in us a healthier discipline of waiting? My book note this week reviews a book entitled The Soul of Christianity, Restoring the Great Tradition, by Houston Smith, San Francisco, HarperCollins, 2005, 176 pages. Born to Methodist missionary parents in rural China in 1919, Houston Smith has enjoyed a distinguished career as a scholar of world religions at Washington University, MIT, Syracuse, and now Berkeley where he lives. His book, The World's Religions, 
first published in 1958, has sold over two million copies as an introductory university textbook on the subject. Now in his late 80s, Smith describes himself as a voice in the wilderness decrying the corrosive forces of secular modernity, which would marginalize religion. Thus, in his earlier book, Why Religion Matters, The Fate of the Human Spirit in an Age of Disbelief, in 2002, he explored some of these themes. His newest book begins with that prophetic warning but moves forward with a positive exposition of what he calls the great tradition of Christianity that enjoyed nearly universal acceptance among believers for the first millennium of the faith. In part one, Smith presents an innovative interpretation of what he considers the 15 fixed points of a distinctly Christian worldview. In fact, I found this part of the book to be mistitled what Smith outlines here is not distinctly or particularly Christian, but rather a general theism. Toward the last part of this section, he admits as much, saying that the first part of the book, quote, outlines the universal grammar of religion to which in their various idioms all religions conform, end quote. Still, his staunch defense of a robust theism is welcome. Part two is called The Christian Story and expands material from his book, The World's Religions. Contrary to those who would be skeptical about ancient Christianity, Smith insists that he intends to be entirely non-innovative and instead to rehearse, restore, and revive what most all Christians of the first millennium believed. This is by far the longest section of the book and concludes with his analyses of the seven foundational points in Christian theology. The Incarnation, Atonement, the Trinity, Life Everlasting, the Resurrection of the Body, Hell, and the Virgin Birth. In the final part three, he compares and contrasts the three main branches of Christianity, Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, and Protestantism. What Smith offers here is similar to the book The Heart of Christianity by the New Testament scholar Marcus Borg. Smith seems more eager to defend the objective content of the faith compared to Borg who emphasizes subjective faith. And at times he is as critical of liberals as he is of conservatives. Both books attempt a fresh and winsome overview of the essence of Christianity from the perspective of a liberal Christian fighting the forces of reductionistic secularity in major university settings. I like how Smith describes our universities as the churches of materialist secularism. I would take personal exception to some of his liberal conclusions, but overall found myself very grateful for his forceful and public defense of the faith. Written at a simple level for the ordinary layperson, this would be a fine book to recommend to non-believers who would never listen to more conservative voices, but might in fact listen to an insider of their guild. Smith writes with equal parts passion and conviction in this unapologetic witness to the good news of Jesus. My film review for this week is of the film Crash from the year 2004. 
This tense urban drama set in Los Angeles opens with a car wreck that serves as a metaphor for the collisions between ordinary people because of the racist rage that underlies their particular English vernaculars, work, dress, music, marriage, and family. A Persian shopkeeper exclaims, they think we're all Arabs. A Hispanic locksmith, two black hoodlums, a wealthy black film director, redneck white trash, a despicable suburban white couple, a naive white rookie cop, and other ethnic typecasts are all trapped in stereotypes that they project onto others in their paranoia, not all of which, by the way, is unjustified, in their bigotry and in their mutual misunderstanding. In this film, good people are bad and bad people are good, and most everyone is an understandable mixture of the two. A corrupt cop, for example, who molested a woman he apprehended, later rescues her from a burning vehicle with professionalism, bravery, and genuine compassion. You think you know who you are, he tells a younger cop, but just wait a few years. He rages at a black HMO clerk but at home tenderly cares for his dying father. Accidental encounters and random events crash these fallible human beings into one another in a world void of all political correctness. Director Paul Haggis does an excellent job of showing the corrosive power of racism, not only between people, but even among people who are otherwise from the same group. And finally, for poetry, poetry this week, <clears throat> we post Advent Antiphons by Sister Charlita. From Mary's sweet silence, come word mutely spoken. Pledge of our real life, come bread yet unbroken. Seed of the golden wheat in us be sown. Fullness of true life through us be known. Secret held tenderly, guarded with love, cradled in purity, child of the dove, come. Thank you for joining journeywithjesus.net for November 27th, 2005. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.